Well, on Sunday mornings, we are doing a deep dive into the Gospel of Mark, and the title for this morning's message is The Death of John the Baptizer. And let's read through our passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a few minutes. And, and there's some things I want to show you from this story that I think will be really powerful and life-changing for all of us. But let's, let's read through it. It's a very long passage, but it's Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, and I always preach and teach from the ESV, the English Standard Version, which, as we all know, is the version that Jesus read from. Amen? So, Mark chapter, four, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, naughty, naughty, the head of John the Baptist. <laughs> and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Welcome to Movement Church. Happy Sunday. So glad. <laughs> Just super encouraging passage this morning. So a little lighthearted Bible study. <laughs> well, let me pray, and let's walk through the story. Father God, we thank you for your word, and I ask you to speak, through it, speak to us through it now. One thing I love about the Bible is the Bible is real, Lord, and it deals with real life. These aren't fairy tales. These aren't myths, Lord. These are life-changing truths. And so I ask you to speak to us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking at this passage, there's three things that I want to discuss. Who was John the Baptist? What was John's message? And how did John die? So the first question I want to look at is, who was John the Baptist? I think John is one of those amazing but often overlooked Bible characters. And probably the reason for this is because John lived at the same time as Jesus, and so he was eclipsed by Jesus. I think that if John had lived at a different time in redemptive history, he probably would have been in, in the top tier with Moses and David and Isaiah. But because he lived at the same time as Jesus, he, he, I think John kind of never really gets his due. So first of all, can we just give John the Baptist his due this morning? Can we just honor God for him? 
Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven, I tell you the truth, this is what Jesus says, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. And that is a pretty big compliment from Jesus Christ. In the Western church, we call him John the Baptist. In the Eastern Orthodox church, they call him John the Forerunner. And in Islam, he's called the prophet Yahya and is actually revered by the Islamic world. But let's take a minute and let's look at who John the Baptist was. I think he's this absolutely fascinating Bible character. I love what William Lane writes about him. He says, John the Baptist is a crucial figure in the history of revelation and redemption. In retrospect, his appearance in the wilderness was the most important event in the life of Israel for more than 300 years. John was a miracle baby like Jesus. His mother Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they both became pregnant at the same time. So John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin and was six months older than him. John's father, Zechariah, was a priest in the temple, and both of his parents descended from priestly lines. Zechariah was from the Levitical line, and Elizabeth was from the, the, the Aaronic line, or she was a descendant of Aaron. And they were both deeply godly people. And he was a miracle baby, because when Elizabeth became pregnant with John, they were in their old age, and she was beyond the years it was capable for her to bear a child. But Zechariah had been asking for a son, and God in his mercy answered the prayer of Zechariah and gave him a son. And what happened was is the, an angel appeared to Zechariah when he was in the temple to announce, just like, just like Gabriel appeared to Mary, one day Zechariah was serving in the temple, and this angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple to declare to him that he was gonna have a son. And what's actually kind of interesting is he didn't believe the angel. Can I get an amen on that? He's like, he's like dude, I'm 60 years old. I'm not having no kid. And because he didn't believe the angel, the angel actually struck him mute, and his father Zechariah was not able to speak for a period of time. The angel told him to name John the Baptist John, and John comes from the Hebrew name Yohanan, which means Yahweh is gracious or Yahweh is merciful. And in some mysterious way that I don't fully understand, it actually says that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. At the end of the service, we're actually gonna do a baby dedication. We have two babies we're gonna dedicate to the Lord today, little Samuel and little Camilla. Come on. And we got a couple other babies on the way, Michael and Paula are pregnant, Cole and Emma, so we're making Christian babies at Movement, amen? <laughs> and one thing I always pray is I just, I just pray, I'm like, Lord, in some mysterious way that I don't understand, fill these babies with the Holy Spirit before they're ever even born. And that's what was true of John the Baptist. John grew up in the wilderness. At some point when John was a child, and I don't really understand the parenting philosophy behind this, but John went off in the desert and he grew up by himself out in the wilderness of Judea. John had taken the Nazarite vow, and the Nazarite vow was a vow of separation to the Lord from Numbers chapter 6. And if you took the Nazarite vow, you didn't drink alcohol, you didn't eat grapes or raisins, you didn't touch anything that came from a grapevine, and you didn't cut your hair or shave your beard, so John the Baptist probably looked like Tom Hanks in Castaway, okay? And on top of the fact that he lived off of locusts and wild honey, so he was probably thin as a rail, and he was living out in the desert, so he probably had a killer tan. Can I get an amen on that? He's living in Phoenix, <laughs> and he looks like this wild guy out in the desert. And he's out in the wilderness calling people to repent and prepare for the coming judgment of God. 
And the wilderness was actually a special place. It was a place of separation to God. It was a place where you met God. In Jesus' day, you would go out into the desert, you would leave the world behind you, and you would go out to this barren place to see God, to hear from God, away from the noise and the distractions and the temptations and the corruptions of the world. It was in the wilderness that God met Israel on Mount Sinai and gave to them the law and established a covenant with them. And so John's out in the wilderness preaching, and he's calling the Israelites to come out from the world to confess and to repent and to get their lives right with God before the coming of the Messiah and the day of God's wrath. And baptism was basically invented by John. He started the practice, and then it was picked up, and it was continued by Jesus and his disciples. And Jesus commands us to baptize people as well. And so that's why we're going to do baptisms. Actually, out back on 24th Street in our 150-gallon plastic feeding trough from Tractor Supply. Can I get an amen? And we baptize people out of obedience to Jesus. And Jesus commands us to baptize people. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus left us with two sacraments, baptism and communion. And Xavier let us, you know, encouraged us to take communion during the first worship set, but we're all for sure going to take it after the worship service. And when we take communion, we take the, the bread and the cup that represents Christ's body, which is broken for us, and we baptize people. And at movement, we believe, we don't believe in infant baptism. We believe in what's called credo baptism or believer's baptism. That what we believe at movement is that when a person consciously surrenders their life to Jesus Christ, that out of obedience to Jesus and recognition of their confession of Christ, then we baptize them into water. And what the water symbolizes is the water actually symbolizes death. That as you're going down into the water, you're dying to your old person, and when you come up out of the water, you're being resurrected to do new life in Jesus. The water also symbolizes cleansing, and what I love the most about it, and this is why we do them on 24th Street in Midtown Manhattan, it's a public declaration to the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. We used to do them out at Far Rockaway. You wanna hear a funny story? When we used to do them out at Far Rockaway, one time we were doing these baptisms, and I was doing the, I, had, I had a wetsuit on, and my friend Parker Shin had a wetsuit on, and we both had the wetsuits on, we were baptizing people. And back then, I had like a really long beard, and Parker was actually a male model. He was an Abercrombie model, okay? And he was like, like the best looking guy you've ever seen, right? Like even, it was, I look at him like, that's a really good looking man, right? So, um, and so we were baptizing people, and people, this guy walks up, he goes, he goes, heck yeah, I get married. He says, I would get, ba- no, he says, he says, I would get baptized by a lumberjack and a male model. <laughs> You're like, what? Anyway, so just a random story, right? So we used to do them out at Far Rockaway, but now we do, I love doing them on the street in midtown Manhattan as a public declaration of the world that you're letting the entire world know that I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. To me, it's the most punk rock thing in the world. And John was God's instrument. And what's fascinating is, all right, so John is God's instrument. God is doing a new work in the life of John. John's preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. But notice where this is happening. It's, ha- it's happening out in the wilderness. What's happening is that God is now bypassing the temple. The temple is not the center of God's activity anymore. God is doing a new thing. He's putting new wine into new wineskins. And through these two young men, these two revivalists, Jesus and John, 
God is moving outside of the whole temple system and a new move of the Holy Spirit, and he's establishing the kingdom of God. God is starting a new thing. And John was preparing the ground for the coming of the gospel of Jesus. And as I've shared before, John was God's plow. And his responsibility was to come break the ground and prepare the ground for the coming of the message of Jesus. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the final messenger of the old order of the old covenant. He was the prophesied coming of Elijah who came before the day of the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 16, 16, he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. John's role, like the Old Testament's role and like our role, was to point people to Jesus. And so when Jesus came on the scene, kind of an interesting thing happened. So before Jesus comes on the scene, John was the guy. He was the rock star. John had blown up. He had 100,000 Instagram followers. He had the fastest growing church in New York. He was young. He was on fire. He was the man. He had good fashion. He was killing it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus is 10 times more popular than John. Everyone's going out to Jesus' church now. Jesus is the new guy. He's the new thing. And what's interesting is when John's disciples saw that happening, they go to John and they say, John, everyone's going out to Jesus now. And John says the most interesting thing. He says, he must increase. And if you know it, say it with me. But I must decrease. Because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. I came to point people to Jesus. And now that Jesus is becoming famous, that's what it's all about. And he lived like an Old Testament prophet. He dressed like Elijah. He clothed clothed himself in camel's hair. He lived off locusts. And the random thing about locusts is a totally Bible nerd fact. You know it's the one insect you're allowed to eat in Levitical law? And it's actually high in protein, so knock yourself out, okay? And uh, and John was killed for the truth, as well. And it's actually high in protein, so knock yourself out, okay? And, uh, and John was killed for the truth, as we'll see in our story in just a few minutes. Both John and Jesus will die these early deaths. They will both die when they're 33 years old for the truth. And John was radically dedicated to God. And I want you to hear this, because as we were worshiping during that first set, I really felt like God was impressing this point on my heart. I want you to hear this. The whole focus of John's life was to know and serve Yahweh. Just say that right now. Just say Yahweh. John was consumed with Yahweh. He was obsessed with Yahweh. He wanted to know Yahweh. He wanted to be in a relationship with Yahweh. And so he left the world. He went out into the desert. He's living off locusts. He's living off wild honey. And the whole focus and passion and consuming desire of his life was to know Yahweh, was to worship Yahweh, was to be consumed by Yahweh. He had one passion. He had one desire, and it was God. And he was deeply humble. He said that he was not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals, which was the role of a Gentile slave. John was so humble, he says, you know what? I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And because of this radical commitment to Yahweh, combined with this radical humility, John prepared the way for the coming of Jesus. He was God's plow to break up the ground and prepare the way for the revival that was going to come with Jesus. John the Baptist was so influential that the Jewish historian Josephus actually writes more about John than about Jesus. 
And decades later, the Apostle Paul would still encounter people in Ephesus who were disciples of John. Look at these two quotes by William Barclay. The first one's very long and the second one's pretty short, but I want you to read these along with me. He was a man who lived his message. Not only his words, but also his whole life was a protest. In the case of John, the man was the message. And because of that, people listened. His message was effective because it was completely humble. His own verdict on himself was that he was not fit for the duty of a slave. John asked nothing for himself, but everything for the Christ whom he proclaimed. The man's obvious self-forgetfulness, his patient yieldedness, his complete self-effacement, and I love this line right here, look at this, his utter lostness in his message compelled people to listen. And look at this last sentence. His message was effective because he pointed to something and someone beyond himself. It wasn't about John the Baptist. It was about pointing people to Jesus. Look at this other quote by William Barclay. John's one aim was not to occupy the center of the stage himself, but to try to connect men with the one who was greater and stronger than he. And men listened to him because he pointed not to himself, but to the one that all men need. And you know what? And we're to do the same. Amen, church? And secondly, what was John's message? Does anybody know class? Not if you're in the first service. Repent. Give Maya a round of applause. Exactly right. What was John's message? It was repent. Because God's judgment is coming. Now, what does it mean to repent? Well, the original Greek word that we translate into English is actually the word metanoia. Just say that, metanoia. And it means, it literally means to change your mind, to change the way you're thinking, to think differently, which is ironically the motto for Apple computers, think different. That's literally what the word metanoia means. To repent means that we've been looking at life wrong. Our values are off. We've been looking at life through the wrong lens, through the values of the world. And because of that, it's affected the way we're living our lives, and so our lives have gotten off track. And so what we need to do when we repent is we need to come back to God, see life from his perspective, from his value system, and look at our lives, not through the lens of the world, but through the word of God. And where we're off, we need to ask God's forgiveness, we need to turn from those sinful things that we're doing, and we need to change the way we're living to bring our lives back into harmony with God's will. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last messenger of the Old Covenant. And so the motivation for John's repentance was the coming judgment of God. Whereas in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, the primary motivation now for repentance, it's not the judgment of God, it's the love and kindness of God displayed to us in the cross. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, 4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so the way the New Testament works is that when we see how much Jesus loved us by dying for us on the cross and taking the judgment of God upon himself on our behalf, it moves our hearts to repent and to get right with God. It's the love of Christ that constrains us. You know, this is what happened to me. You know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up going to church. Some friends of mine became born-again Christians. They invited me to go to the youth group. They, they became born-again Christians. I thought they were crazy, amen? And then they, but they started working on me and talking to me about Jesus. And I went to this youth group, and I remember the night, I'll never forget it, where my youth pastor shared this very simple message about how Jesus Christ had died on the cross for me. 
And I was an atheist, I was a hater, I didn't want anything to do with Christianity, but once I saw the love of God displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, you know what it did? It conquered my heart, and I did what? I repented. And what happens when we repent? I want you to hear this, listen to this. We are forgiven instantly, our sins are washed away in the blood of Jesus, our fellowship and intimacy with God is restored, and times of refreshing come from God's presence. The Apostle Peter says in Acts 3.19, and read this out loud with me. Let's all read this together. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And I want to repeat what I just said. So here's what happens. And we're all going to repent in just a moment, okay? What happens is when we repent, I want you to hear this. When you come to God and you repent, you are forgiven instantly. Everything you did is washed away in the blood of Jesus your intimacy with God is restored and instantly, and times of refreshing come from God's presence. And so repentance isn't just something we do when we commit a really big sin. Every day we are to repent. We're to live a lifestyle of repentance. All day long we're to repent. You know, as I've shared many times before, Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. We just constantly repent. When we get angry, we do, we do what? We, okay, let's, we're gonna do that a little bit stronger. When we get angry, what do we do? Repent. When we have an inappropriate thought, what do we do? Repent. When we commit a big sin, repent. we just keep running back to Jesus and we repent again and again and again and again. We don't let our sin pile up. We keep short accounts with God. And I wanna tell you something about Jesus too. It's like you say, well, Mike, how many times can I run back to Jesus? How many times can I repent? An infinite number of times? You know, I'll be perfectly honest, like if you, you can burn me like maybe three times and then I'm done, okay? I have limited emotional resources and probably by the fourth time, I'm like, you should probably just find another church. Like I just, you know, I'm good. I just can't, you can burn me because I'm limited. I'm just a human being. I have limited emotional resources, but Jesus has unlimited emotional resources. You can, you can sin against Jesus a million times and he will forgive you a million times. You can disobey him a million times and he will receive you back a million times. You say, well, Mike, how can he do that? Because he has infinite mercy, infinite grace, infinite love. He will never give up on you. He will never abandon you. And you can run back to him again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Amen, church? And that's what we do as a Christian. Just don't let your sin pile up. Like, don't, don't like, really, you know, run up the ledger before you repent. You just, when you make a mistake, repent. When you make a mistake, repent. And you keep short accounts with God. And lastly... This is a little bit gruesome. How did John die? Well, that's what we see in our passage. You know, this is the only story of length in the gospel of Mark that's not about Jesus. And it's given to us here as a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. And what this story is doing is it's actually preparing us for the crucifixion of Jesus. Like in a few chapters, there's, there's this really bad story coming. And so this story is designed to prepare us for that coming story. Ben Witherington writes about this, says, this tale serves as an ominous warning about the fate of Jesus. The cross looms in the background from this point on in the narrative. John was the forerunner of Jesus, both in his life and his death. There's two passion narratives in the Gospel of Mark, this one about John the Baptist and the latter one about Jesus. And both of them will die at the hands of a vacillating government official in response to the scheming of their enemies. These two great and innocent, world-changing men will both die unjust deaths. But this is how, but this is, 
so often how the world treats the people of God. Ben Witherington commenting on this writes, he says, righteous persons often meet untimely ends in a dark and dangerous world. And not only will John and Jesus die unjustly, but 10 of the original apostles will also be martyred along with millions of Christians in the first three centuries of Christian history. And so this story serves as a warning for all of us who would follow the Lord. And I want you to hear something. I want you to listen to this. Is part of what this story shows us is we always have to guard against triumphalism. Yes, we want to take New York. Yes, we want to take the world for Jesus. Yes, we want to see God do great things. I think God wants to bring revival. I absolutely believe that. But until Jesus returns... There will always be a cost of following God in the world, and we have to understand that and just know that it's part of the price of knowing Jesus. Donald English writes, he says, to be a disciple as a second half of the gospel will make clear means following Jesus all the way to the cross and beyond. But let's close by walking through the story. So as we get to Mark chapter six, Jesus' fame has begun to spread throughout Galilee. And King Herod hears of it, and he thinks this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Because John had a guilty conscience because he killed John the Baptist, who he knew was a righteous and godly man. And what's also interesting to note is to see what people initially thought about Jesus. Some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people thought he was Elijah because Jewish people believe that Elijah will appear before the coming of the Messiah. And so that's why when Jewish people celebrate the Passover, They'll, you know, they'll make a table and they'll have food on it and all Jewish people do is, is they have an empty chair with a glass of wine in case Elijah shows up at their house <laughs> to declare the coming of the Messiah. And some people thought that Jesus was a prophet and he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was a king of Israel and the Messiah. King Herod is also an interesting figure. King Herod and John the Baptist could not have been more opposite. And Herod actually wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. And he ruled over one-fourth of the Roman province of Judea. And so he ruled, he ruled over Galilee, and he ruled over Perea. And Perea was on the east side of the Jordan River in modern-day Jordan. And Perea actually is where the rock city of Petra is. And that's where Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was filmed, was in Petra. And he was a leader over Galilee from 4 BC to 39 AD. So when, so when Jesus grew up, King Herod ruled over Galilee during his entire lifetime. He was the son of Herod the Great who had built the great temple in Jerusalem. He ruled from the city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee that he built on top of a pagan cemetery. And he was this kind of wild guy. But when we come to our story, John the Baptist is now in prison because he had called out King Herod for marrying Herodias. Now, Herod's first wife was the daughter of the king of the Nabataeans. And the Nabataeans were the ones who built the rock city of Petra. And what he did was is he, he left his first wife and then he seduced Herodias and convinced her to divorce her brother Philip and to marry King Herod, which was a direct violation of the Levitical law because the Levitical law forbids somebody from marrying. You, you can't marry the wife of a living brother. Also on top of the fact that Herodias was also his niece by his half-brother Aristobulus. And so John the Baptist calls Herod out for this, and he says, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And when Herodias found out about this, she was furious. And she held a grudge against him, and she wanted to kill him. But King Herod wouldn't allow it because he feared John and knew that he was a righteous and godly man. And what's also interesting about Herod is he loved to listen to John preach, 
but his mind was so clouded by sin that the preaching of John just perplexed him. And I think he, he, he would look at John and go, man, I really like this guy, but I don't know what the heck he's talking about, right? Because his mind was so clouded by sin. He knew he was a spokesman for God. He was drawn to him, but he kind of couldn't figure it out because his mind was so jumbled up and clouded and confused by sin. And so what he does, is he tr- actually tries to do this half measure. He doesn't want to kill him, which is what Herodias wants because he knows that he's a godly man, so he throws him in prison. But this half measure will end up backfiring against Herod. And there's also so many similarities here between the story of Jezebel and Elijah in the Old Testament and Herodias and John the Baptist. Both Herodias and Jezebel were these calculating, powerful women who wanted to destroy God's messenger. And sometimes you'll hear the phrase, a Jezebel spirit. Have you ever heard that phrase before? And I want you to hear this. A Jezebel spirit actually is just a spirit of control. Whether it's coming from a man or a woman, or a government. It's just a desire to control other people and make them do what you want. Whereas the Holy Spirit brings liberty. Paul says in 2 Corinthians three seventeen, I want us all to read this out loud. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is what there is, freedom. The Jezebel Spirit is a spirit of control. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of freedom. And like I talked about last week, we want this to be a house of freedom. We want to feel free in the Holy Spirit. If Anna wants to go into some free-flowing thing, knock yourself out. You know what I mean? If they want to do an extra song, if you want to dance, if you want to get on your knees, I never want this to become an atmosphere of control. I want it to be a place of freedom in the Holy Spirit. But Herodias finds her opportunity to kill John at a party that Herod was throwing for his birthday. So Herod has this huge party, right? He's popping bottles. He's making it rain. He's ordering bottle service for everybody. He, he got Drake to show up. He's got Diplo DJing. It's just like everything's going off. He's invited all the movers and shakers of Galilee, his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. And as they're partying, and this is my theory, and they've probably had too much to drink at this point, Herodias' daughter Salome comes in and she's just a teenage girl and she starts dancing sensually and provocatively before all these inebriated men. And she gets these guys all wound up and in a moment of probably what I believe was alcohol-induced poor judgment, Herod says to her, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vows to her in front of all the most powerful men in Galilee, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And he never should have made that vow. So then Salome runs out to her mom Herodias and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And Herodias says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so she comes back in and in front of everyone, she says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Really lovely mother and daughter combo there, amen? And it says that Herod was exceedingly sorry But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He didn't want to lose face. He didn't want to seem weak. And in front of all these so-called friends, he ends up making the biggest mistake of his life. And wanting to seem like a tough guy and a big shot, he goes, yeah, go get John, cut his head off and bring, bring his head in. So the executioner goes, cuts John's head off, puts it on a platter, brings it in and delivers it to Salome. And Salome gives it to Herodias. And Herodias is revenge is complete. 
and John is killed for speaking the truth. But this will haunt King Herod for the rest of his life. This whole story ends like a Martin Scorsese film, okay? His life after this will begin to go downhill. The king of the Nabataeans, whose daughter Herod humiliated by divorcing, will launch a military strike against Herod that will wipe out his army. And he will end up going to the emperor Caligula, asking to actually be made a king. And because of that, the emperor will, will banish him to Gaul for the rest of his life. And when John's disciples hear of his death, these young, courageous men come and take his body and lay it in a tomb. And as we close, and Anna, you can come up and start playing keys wherever you are out there, there's two brief lessons we can glean from this story as we close. The first one is the danger of holding grudges against people. Yeah, there's a lot of ums in the room, amen? <laughs> I'm Irish. I'm like, I'm like an epic grudge holder, amen? It's like... I could win like Olympic awards for all the grudges. Herodias' grudge will lead to the death of John. We have to forgive and forget and let things go and just move on. Amen? Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love covers a multitude of sins. He is without sin. Let him cast the first stone. And this should be especially true for those of us who know the Lord. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. If Jesus Christ has forgiven me, and all the things, he's forgiven me, if he's forgiven me, how could I not forgive somebody else? If all of my sins were paid for on the cross, how could I ever hold a grudge against anybody else? And the second thing we see from the story is the danger of putting ourselves in compromising situations. This is my theory, but I think if Herod hadn't been drinking so much and wasn't wound up from Salome and hadn't been partying with all the wrong people, John never would have died. But he set himself up to fall. And so the lesson for all of us is to be careful not to put ourselves in compromising situations from too much alcohol or being with the wrong people or being in a place we shouldn't be where we're just setting ourselves up for a fall. Most people in life who make a big mistake weren't looking to make a big mistake. They just put themselves in a situation they shouldn't have been in and they fell. And so the, the little last word of wisdom I wanna give to everybody in this room this morning is look, in our Christian lives, let's not see how close can we sail to the rocks and not shipwreck. Let's push out and sail where the water is deep and where it's safe. Amen? Let's not try to explore the outer bounds of Christian freedom. <laughs> let's just stay close to Jesus. Let's sail where the water's deep and let's play it safe so we never set ourselves up for a fall or a big life mistake. Amen, church? And the question I want to close with, and this is what I want to think about as we sing our last two worship songs, is where do we need to repent today? What in our lives do we need to confess and ask God to forgive us and wash us clean?